0: Question to ask ourselves every now and again is why do we come to church? Because there are actually lots of good reasons that don't involve God. Um, Turns out sociologically that coming to church um, actually makes you better off in quite a number of categories health, well being. You can find lots of friends at church, it's great in that way, Uh, and it keeps you busy on a Sunday. But actually, thankfully, there are are lots of other, much better reasons to come to church. One of the great kings in the Old Testament records his motivation for wanting to gather with God's people. He says this in Psalm 27, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. David's motivation um, was worship. He wants to be in the Lord's house where God's people are gathered to be in the presence of God. And in the New Testament, uh, we don't require a, a tent or a temple to go into for the presence of God because we, the people of God, are that temple. Where those indwelt by God Himself, Jesus as our chief cornerstone. We're spiritual stones. And so when we gather, when we sing, when we serve, when we pray, when we sit under truth about God, there's a real sense in which this is where the presence of the Lord is. His beauty can be seen in the face of one another. And now that's a reason to want to come to church. To be in the presence of of God in and through his people. Let's sing to that. Let's stand and sing as a musician, please.
1: See I'll see you in
0: Broken and bruised as we are, that we can come on our knees because you are merciful and you have made a way for us to be forgiven. We want to take this time, Lord, corporately to repent. You know our hearts and you know our thought life, Lord. You know the deeds done behind closed doors. You're the one who knows all, and that is both a fearful and and a wonderful thing because we do not need to be false before you, nor can we be. Lord, forgive us our sin, we pray for Jesus' sake. As we have just sung, Jesus paid it all, all. He paid it all, every last sin, every stain, every dark and unwanted thought, every sharp and piercing word. All of our outbursts of seemingly uncontrollable anger, our internet history, even our good deeds that are tainted with impure motives, he paid it all. His spotless life, his shed blood, his ransomed life on a Roman cross, his death and his burial, all for our sin, paid once for all. We couldn't clear our own debt, Lord, even if we wanted to. We cannot wipe our stained record clean. We need the pure, white, and stain free record of another to replace our sin. We need a, a righteousness from outside of ourselves, and this is Christ, our perfect righteousness, the one who clothes us. Lord, we thank you for him, thank you for his beauty, thank you for his majesty, thank you for his mercy, thank you for the gift of who he is to sinners such as us. And so we fling ourselves as a congregation upon Christ once more. We seek your forgiveness and we ask you to cleanse us for what Christ, cleanse us for what we have done in the light of what Christ has done. Grant us faith to look once more to his cross. To his death, to his resurrection, and to find pardon for our sins, we pray. Help us to find release from guilt and shame, and to find great joy in this life for what you have done. Fill us with a sense of wonder, we pray, at your steadfast love, at your mercy. And Lord, give us grace to live lives that abound with thankfulness to you, our God. For we pray all these things in the powerful, in the mighty in the glorious name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Um, evening, all welcome to our evening service here at Charlotte Chapel. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Ashley. It's a, um, a great joy to get to serve here as one of the pastors in training. And I just want to um, welcome you, particularly if you're new, perhaps you're visiting the church for one of the first times, or you've been attending for, for quite a while. I want to welcome you. Uh, it's great to have you here with us. And welcome to those at home on the live stream as well that continue to gather with us in that way. Um, just want to mention one quick notice before um, we um, move on to our uh, membership welcome and Bible reading. Um, this is a, mem- a notice really for those um, uh, Sunday school teachers and parents as well from next week We'll be bringing um, children into the service rather than taking them directly down into the Sunday school. So we'll not need to go and take them down the stairs and drop them off at quarter to ten. You can bring them into the gathered service um, together. And after a couple of songs, um, we'll then send uh, you and the teachers out ready for the, the Sunday school lesson. So that's just an advance notice about that it's great practically not only to give the Sunday school teachers more time to pray and that you don't have to take one child one place and one another but also it gives the children an opportunity to be with the gathered church and to sing the praises of God so that's a, a great joy for us and um, we're going to now uh, take some time to welcome in um, one of our members come on Philo hello hi um, you don't need a mic I don't it's okay um, So um, Philo has been involved in the church for a little while now, um, in the Rooted ministry, but also in a number of other areas. It's been really encouraging to see you get stuck in. And so what we want to do is just welcome Philo in formally into membership. And so what we have here for you is a book, uh, which we can commend to you. What is a healthy church member? So that's there for you. And with each member, what we want to do is give them a, a Bible verse to encourage them and something to reflect on. And this, yours, is from Psalm 92 verses four and five and it says this for you make me glad by your deeds Lord I sing for joy at what your hands have done how great are your works Lord how profound your thoughts and so this is for you and we just want to welcome you into membership uh, it's a great joy to have you here with us and we're looking forward to seeing you grow and flourish there we go great stuff and you can stay up here because you'll be doing the Bible reading for us in a moment great stuff Okay, so um, we're continuing in our evening series now uh, through the book of 1 Samuel, and so we'll be taking this moment to read through our scripture passage, and today we're working through 1 Samuel chapter 14, and it'll be the whole chapter, and two of our church members, Philo and Cheche, will be coming to read that passage for us.
2: That is First Samuel chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitab, son of Phineas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozas, and the other Sina. One cliff stood to, stood to the north towards Michmash, the other to the south towards Jiba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come. Let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistines' outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they're hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Master the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor-bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up to them to their camp, went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel And the battle moved on beyond Hmm. Beth-Avon.
3: Paul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I am avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath, so he reached out the end of his sword, the end of his staff that was in his hand, and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ai Jalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder, and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said go out among the men and tell each and tell them each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them do not sin against the lord by eating meat with blood still in it So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there then Saul built an altar to the lord it was the first time he had done this Saul said let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn, and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of the Lord, of, the, of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said, come here all you who are leaders of the army and let us find out what sin has been committed today as surely as the lord rescues as surely as the lord who rescues israel lives even if the guilt lies with my son jonathan he must die but not one of them said a word saul then said to all the israelites you stand over there i and jonathan my son will stand over here do what seems best to you they replied Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, Why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with the Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with the tumim." Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot, and the men were cleared. Saul said, Cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me, what have you done? So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel, never As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hand of those who had plundered them. Saul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishwa. The name of his elder daughter was Merab, and that of his younger was Michal. His wife's name was Ahinoam. Daughter of Ahimaaz. The name of the commander of Saul's army was Abner, son of Ner, and Ner was Saul's uncle. Saul's father Kish and Abner's father Ner were sons of Abiel. All the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines, and whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service.
0: Thank you, Philo and Cheche, for that reading. Um, In a few moments, uh, Dan, one of our ministry apprentices, is going to come and preach from that passage. And we look forward to that. But before that, we're going to sing. We're going to sing a hymn that reminds us, uh, as Christians, of our only access to God. Our only access is the one who is before the throne of God above, our great uh, plea, our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stand and sing before the throne of God above.
4: Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask that your word would be our guide, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and that your glory would be our supreme concern. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our King, Amen. So my flatmates and I are reading this book together, albeit slowly, because we've only got the one copy and we're not very good at reading nonetheless we're reading it. It's called Life Together. Uh, it's a book about the blessing of living with other Christians and how to encourage each other in the faith as you live together. And it's written by a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer and we should have a picture of him up here. He's a good looking guy. There you go. Um, let me tell you his story. So the date is 1945. The place is the Flossenbürg concentration camp in Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian pastor who was involved in resistance against the Nazis. After many years of leading an underground seminary, Bonhoeffer decides that it's time to put an end to the war. So he gets involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Obviously, it didn't work. He and his co-conspirators were arrested and sent around Germany to various concentration camps and death camps. During this time, the guards became friendly with Bonhoeffer, uh, and they would secretly take him into the cells of despairing prisoners so that he could minister to them and pray for them. And this is one of the final accounts of his life that we have. He was a remarkable man. This is one of the prisoners speaking about him. Bonhoeffer was one of the very few persons I have ever met for whom God was real and always near. On Sunday, the 8th of April, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went right to the heart of us all. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, "'Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us.'" That had only one meaning for all the prisoners, the gallows. We said goodbye to him. He took me aside and said this to me, "'This is the end. But for me, it is the beginning of life. The next day, he was hanged in Flossenburg. Now, what really struck me in reading that was the first line. Bonhoeffer was one of the very few persons I have ever met for whom God was real and always near. He proved his trust in God in his final day as he looked towards the beginning of life after death. And in 1 Samuel chapter 14, do grab your, grab your Bibles, have them open, we meet a man for whom God was real and near, just like for Bonhoeffer. He trusted in the God who could not be stopped, and this is written to help us uh, trust God like him. So let's dig in. First heading we have, God saves through the man of faith. So let's set the scene. We, we read last week of Jonathan's first attack against the Philistines, and Saul's unfaithful and disobedient response to the threat of a counterattack. The result was the Lord telling Saul that his kingdom would not last. So we were left with bad news for the Israelites. The Philistines had amassed many troops getting ready to invade, and the Jews didn't even have any weapons. It's somewhat like the Russian troops currently surrounding Ukraine. And now in verses 1 to 5 we have here, we're shown the beginning of the big contrast of this chapter. Jonathan's faith and Saul's faithlessness. So have a look down at verse 1 with me. Jonathan and his armor bearer have a brave plan. He and his armor bearer, uh, they're probably both around 15 years old, are going to attack this outpost of 20 trained soldiers. And in verses 4 and 5, we're even told that the outpost he wants to attack is fortified by cliffs on either side. This is a crazy-sounding plan. Two teenagers against 20 grown men trained to fight. And then we're shown Saul. Have a look down. He's sitting under this pomegranate tree. He's in luxury, surrounded by soldiers and a priest. Saul has 600 men compared to just the one man that Jonathan has. And it seems that Saul has called to himself a rejected and a faithless priest in the line of rejected priests. Earlier in 1 Samuel, we heard that uh, the priests were rejected because they dishonored God's glory. This is why we're told that the priest is related to Ichabod. That word means no glory. So Jonathan seems brave, but outnumbered and outmatched, whereas Saul seems cowardly, And he's surrounding himself with all these soldiers and this rejected priest. Now have a look down at verse 6. It's one of the most amazing verses in all of 1 Samuel, I think. We have the question, why would Jonathan think he can do this? Verse 6 gives us the answer. He has faith in God to save. He recognizes that God does not need or even want powerful armies to do his work. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. God is unstoppable. That's what Jonathan sees. And so if God so chose, he could use just one man to save billions, I suppose. That might ring a bell for some of us. God can do anything, and Jonathan believes that. But notice in these verses, he's not just believing it in his head, while not letting that belief change his actions. It's really easy to do that to have some kind of intellectual faith, but to do nothing about it. To kind of say, Jesus, I believe that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but then to pursue promotions and pay rises at the expense of a passionate love and desire for God's glory in Christ. Jonathan doesn't do that. He stakes his life on his faith in the God who cannot be stopped. Just like he was for Bonhoeffer, God was so real to Jonathan. Now, maybe you can relate to this situation of being one of the few. Jonathan seems all alone, right? Maybe looking around at work or at uni, it feels like you're the only one, the only one who trusts in Christ, the only one, who, uh, the only one at work who doesn't lie to get the sale, the only one among your friends who refuses to gossip, the only one at school, who won't sign the pride flag or come in wearing your own clothes to celebrate pride month. The only one who would dare to mention Jesus' name in a conversation. And when things look weak and we feel alone, that's good because it forces us to lean in more on God because he is the one. Verse 6 says, he is the one who can save by many or by few. Nothing stops him. It might be a good idea to memorize this verse. It's helped me. So that next time you feel your fewness, if that's a word, or that you're alone, and you're tempted to shrink away, you can remind yourself that nothing stops God from working through seemingly insignificant things. So as we carry on the story, then have a look down. Uh, Jonathan sets up this test to ensure that he is acting according to God's will. And then everything takes place. We don't have time to go into all the details, but it all happens. And Jonathan succeeds against 20 Philistines. But have a look at verse 15. This is all from the hand of God. God causes this supernatural terror and panic to come upon all of the Philistines. And so as the camera points to Saul, we see him hearing about the panic. And he works out that it was Jonathan. And what's his response? What does verse 18 say? He calls for the Ark of the Covenant. That's the box um, in which were the Ten Commandments and the manna and uh, Aaron's staff. And it was there to represent holiness and God's presence with his people. So it's a weighty thing. And early in 1 Samuel, we've seen that the Israelites, just before a big battle, they said, Ah, I know what we'll do to make sure we win. Let's go get the magic box. So they bring the ark and they parade it out like a little trinket, which will make them win. It's their rabbit's foot. That's all it is to them. But God did not give them the victory. And in fact, the glory leaves Israel. So it's God saying, you are not to treat me lightly like that. You are not to treat God like a trinket. And so when we hear about Saul calling for the ark, it makes us kind of sit up for a moment, right? We hold our breath to see what he's going to do with it. Will he parade it around like this magic box, like they did in chapter 4? Or will he submit to God as king over all and go to him and pray to him? Maybe he'll ask a priest to come before God and say, God, this box is a reminder of your kindness to us, of your covenant with us. Show us what we should do. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? If, if he did that, that's exactly what Deuteronomy 20 says should happen before they go into battle. That would be a holy way of a, uh, to approach God before fighting. So which one does he do? Have a look down. We don't find out. Because Saul is not really that interested. He doesn't really trust in the God who can't be stopped. He begins to talk to the priest, but as the sound of the Philistine camp gets louder and louder, and that issue seems more and more important he decides to take matters into his own hands and he tells the priest to stop. And what a contrast that is with Jonathan's faith. This kind of impatient faithlessness. Jonathan says, the Lord can save by many or by few. Maybe he'll use even us, even though we're just boys. That's the faith Jonathan has. But in contrast, we have Saul. Maybe he begins to do the things that show that he has faith, but he quickly gives up. And even as he goes into battle, he doesn't really achieve anything. Have a look down. In verse 20, we see they're already fighting each other, the Philistines. Saul and his 600 men are pretty useless. We're not told that Saul fought valiantly here. He just rushed in. So verse 24 is the conclusion. It's concluded that it is God, the Lord, who saved Israel that day. Not Saul... God saved through Jonathan. God is powerful enough to save through just two teenage boys. So what a contrast we see here between Jonathan and his father Saul. Saul is Israel's king, but he seems totally faithless and kind of useless. Whereas Jonathan seems to be the king that Israel needs. Like if if you were to stop and be like, which Israelite am I going to choose as king? You'd probably say, oh, Jonathan seems like a good candidate. He's the one who's faithful to God and courageous because he believes in the power of God. But what's the tragedy hanging over all of this? It's that we know that Jonathan cannot be king. We know that Saul can't remain king. We we see him and we can tell that is a bad king. But when we look over at Jonathan, we we think he might be the one. Everything's going to be okay, but no. God has already said in chapter 13, Because Saul was foolish and faithless, neither Saul nor any of his descendants will have a lasting kingdom. Jonathan is a picture of the good king, but he can't be king. And a lot of this is anticipating King David, who we're going to see in a couple of chapters' time. But even David himself, we're going to see this. He's he's a great king, but he's not the great king. He messes up. He is not perfect. He is anticipating Jesus, who is the great king. He's the one who who really looked like a king. He really looked like Jonathan, but he was better. He looked like David, but he was better, and he never sinned. He never let us down. He never failed. On the cross, the good king died to save his sinful people from their enemies of sin and death. And even then, when it seemed like the good king had failed and he was dead, nailed to a cross hanging there, he was in fact achieving victory for us. And God proved that victory by raising him from the dead, never to die again, and that is who Jonathan is pointing us to. And what does Jesus want from us, this good king? Jesus wants his people to trust God like Jonathan trusted God in verse 6. Jonathan trusted the God who cannot be stopped. If we could have the next slide, I think verse 6 is actually the Old Testament version of, of this verse up here. This Romans 8, verse 31 and 32 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's faith. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Now Jonathan had the evidence of the exodus and God's faithfulness after that to to base his faith on. But we have an advantage over Jonathan. We don't just have that, we have all that. And we have Christ himself who came to live and die and resurrect. So if God gave Christ to die for us, then we know that he is 100% us, death could not stop him so we can trust the one who cannot be stopped and as we keep moving through our passage we see this second heading verses 24 to 52 God rejects the faithless man have a look down again at verse 24 the, the narrator shows us a little flashback you know in like the Hollywood films they're really annoying I think when they kind of start the film with a flashback you get very confused that's okay, the narrator ha- does that so we get a little flashback here and it happens just before Saul joins the battle. So verse 24 is taking place just before verse 20. And what do we see? We see a self-centered Paul, sorry, a self-centered Saul making a foolish oath. He's so concerned with his own glory, his own vengeance, that he forces all of his troops to fast until the battle. Presumably he's worried that even more of them are gonna desert him, like they did in chapter 13. And you can see that self-centered and godless attitude in verse 24, can't you? Have a look down, read it. Read it with me. Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. It's all about Saul. So now in verse 25, we cut to the troops after the battle, walking through this beautiful forest, flowing with, with honey, kind of, I'm, I'm picturing kind of honey rivers, but I don't think it was quite that much but there's honey around the forest. How enticing that must have been. But everyone was afraid, so no one ate. Except for Jonathan. He wasn't there to hear the oath. He, He didn't know about this. And as soon as he ate the honey, what happens? It's like the moment he eats it, the soldier's been watching him. He doesn't really care much, I guess. But he then looks at him, he says, Jonathan, your father made us promise that we would not eat it. And Jonathan's response is to explain how foolish this oath was. And because of Saul's oath causing the people to be exhausted, once they were allowed to eat the plunder, in the next couple of verses, they ate the meat with the blood still in it. Now, for most of us, that just sounds gross. But actually, for the Israelites, this was against God's law for how the Israelites were to eat meat. They were to drain the blood out. And notice that someone has to tell Saul it's a sin. He doesn't seem to know. Either he doesn't care or he doesn't know. And he responds with kind of godliness here. He seems to be really godly. He, he tells uh, them all to slaughter their animals on his new rock. And he sets up this altar. Now, Saul is very quick to turn away from all this religious stuff. We start to think, Saul's doing really well. He's made an altar. This is the, maybe he'll turn a corner now. This is a new leaf. But No. Look at verse 36. He's really quick to turn away from God and head back into war, relying on himself. He actually has to be reminded by the priest to go to God and ask him what he should do. Now, just as an aside, notice how forgetful Saul is of the Lord's. Don't quite a lot of us act like that sometimes? Like some difficult situation comes up and our first instinct is not... To pray to God and say, God, help, please. I'm confused. I don't know what to do. Our first incident is to sit down, write a pros and cons list or something, try and really work this out, do it ourselves, and we forget to pray. Up well, here, I've got quite a, quite a good-looking man up next. This is Martin Luther. Um, he was a Christian from the 1500s who was once asked by a friend in the morning, Martin, what do you have to do today? Martin responded, work. Work from early till late. In fact, I have so much to do today that I'll spend the first three hours of the day in prayer. Now, I'm not saying that we must spend three hours every day in prayer, but it's noticeable how different his attitude is to Saul's and sometimes to ours. Because he had lots to do, he had lots to pray about. Rather than saying, I'm too busy to have my quiet time today, I'm too busy to read my Bible and pray... He made it a priority because he understood its importance. And that's how Saul should have responded. We can get rid of Martin Luther. Wonderful. Um, that's how Saul should have responded. But you have to be reminded because he didn't trust the God who can't be stopped. And when he prays to God, the response, what is the response down there? It's the loudest silence there possibly could be. Saul gets no response the faithless, self-obsessed king gets no response from God. He's rejected because he has no faith. God is not declining to answer Saul because uh, Jonathan broke some self-centered vow of Saul's. No, no, there is silence from God because God has rejected this man who has no faith. Then when, he, when Saul turns to point the finger at his troops as though it was their fault, he makes Another foolish vow. Whoever sinned must die, even if it's my own son, says, says uh, Saul. I don't know if you know the story of Abraham and Isaac, but this seems like the total opposite. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son because he had faith that God could raise the dead. Whereas Saul is willing to kill his son because Saul himself was in a bit of a tough spot and he's found to have no faith in God's. And he wants a quick fix. Big difference. Now, how does verse thirty nine end? Have a look down. None of them said a word. Saul receives silence from God, and he receives silence from his own people. His faithlessness has resulted in his rejection from God and man. So he separates out the royal family from the people and uses these things called Urim and Thummim to discover who'd broken the vow. We don't really know what they are. That's okay. Um, The upshot is it's discovered that Jonathan has broken the vow. And so verse 33, Saul says, Tell me what you've done. Jonathan's reply is slightly ironic, isn't it? I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul's response is not to say, oh yes, what a stupid vow I made. Instead, it's to make another vow, using God's own name, to promise that he will kill his son. But what happens? The big twist? His troops protest. They say, Jonathan was used by God to bring about this amazing deliverance today. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair on his head will fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. They effectively say, if you want him, you have to come through us. And Saul does nothing. After swearing by God's name that he will kill his son, this man does not have any faith. And in this way, God saved Jonathan, who trusted in him. So, in verse 47, right towards the end, our passage finishes with a kind of obituary for Saul. These verses kind of sum up his life and describe him in quite good terms. Tells us how he fought valiantly and how he succeeded wherever he turned. Maybe Boris Johnson's obituary, no, it probably won't be like that, but it'll be similar. Uh, He had kids and employees. Overall, this is all great stuff. What a fantastic obituary. I wouldn't mind being remembered like that. It's great. Except for one thing, Saul isn't dead. Imagine if someone wrote your obituary and posted it in the paper and put it on Instagram and Facebook before you were dead. Saul isn't dead, but he might as well be. He's been rejected as king. Now, he will remain head of state for some time, and and next week we're going to see his ultimate rejection. But In a very real way, (coughs) he's not king anymore all because he has no faith in the gods who cannot be stopped so where does all this leave us what does the Holy Spirit want us to grab a hold of and apply to our hearts today well first of all I think this is an encouragement for those of us who are Christians isn't it no matter how small your faithful efforts may seem that won't stop God. he isn't dependent on how good you are Your prayers for and your faithful witness to your grandchildren or your children or your friends. Though the effort may seem small, God delights to use tiny, small things to do wonderful things. We see that in Jonathan, don't we? Two unimpressive teenagers are used by God to do seemingly impossible things. All because they trusted in the God who cannot be stopped. And so as we come up maybe to passion for life, and I think maybe the message of this passage is massively useful. Are we feeling like inviting our friends to an event or sharing our faith seems like this really scary and kind of insignificant thing, like, oh, what does it matter if I do or don't? Well, this passage should encourage us. God can do wonderful things but with very small people in very unimpressive ways who are doing things in very unimpressive ways. And secondly, I think most remarkably, this passage is an invitation and it's a call to trust the God who cannot be stopped. Jonathan is kind of our example and Saul is our warning. Jonathan had faith that it is God who saves and nothing can hinder the Lord from saving What does that mean for us? It means no amount of sin can hinder the Lord from saving. No amount of shame can hinder the Lord from saving. No difficult circumstance, no suffering, no situation can hinder the Lord from saving. Nothing can stop our gods. So if you're here and you're not yet trusting in Christ for your salvation, I guarantee you that there is no reason that God cannot have mercy on you and save you through his son, crucified and resurrected for you if you would just believe in him. Jonathan has showed us a picture of what happens when we trust God. We will be saved from death. The promise is, if you have faith in Christ, then your life might be difficult now and maybe you'll die like Bonhoeffer did. But you're guaranteed eternal life at the resurrection of the dead. Nothing will stop God from doing that. So Jonathan is our example and Saul is our warning. Saul trusted in men and in might and in status and in valor and in basically everything and anyone who isn't God. Does that sound familiar to your life? Have you been trying a thousand and one things to find happiness and peace And salvation. Well, look how Saul ends up. Write his obituary now, because he might as well be dead. It's a warning to us as to what happens if we don't trust in the God who can't be stopped. Because he will not be stopped. And he has made only one way of salvation. That is Jesus Christ, who is God himself. And if we refuse to come to him, to Jesus then nothing can stop God from sending sinners who reject him to eternal hell. So don't be like Saul. Be like Jonathan. Trust in the God who cannot be stopped. He loves you and he calls you to come to him, to trust in him. It's amazing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you cannot be stopped. When you choose to save, you will not be stopped from saving. Please help us to trust in you. Please point us to your resurrected son who proved that nothing will stop him. Help us, please, to have faith like Jonathan. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you stand as we sing. freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.